0: even apart from the Bible, I believe there are very compelling reasons to believe in the existence of God. You can look at the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the astounding complexity and design of the world, and a basic universal morality that begs the question, where did this come from? There are many other things you could... Pieces of evidence you could look at, like human consciousness or religious experience. Someone may not be persuaded by one piece of evidence, but just as the different strands come together to form a strong rope, I think when you put these pieces together, they make a strong case for the existence of God. And that's, again, even apart from opening the Bible. I think once you open the Bible, you can see things like fulfilled prophecy, or the resurrection of Jesus, that point to the fact that not only does God exist, the God of, you know, a God exists, a God in general, but the God of the Bible exists, right? There's good reason for believing in the God of Scripture. And we know from Scripture that it teaches that God is almighty, right? It teaches that God can do whatever He can want to do. It teaches that God is omniscient. He knows all things. I think we sang that in that song. Who can teach him anything when he knows all things, right? And the Bible also teaches that God is good. So with all of that in mind, what do we do about all of the suffering in the world? The world, no doubt, is filled with problems, isn't it? Natural disasters, war, poverty, sickness, broken relationships. And death. Just look at the daily headlines in case you need a reminder, and there you will see it. So how do we put all this together? This ample evidence that God exists with also this ample evidence that suffering exists. For many people, the issue of suffering is one of the biggest objections they have to belief in God. And even for those who believe in God, suffering can be a challenge, can it? Since we all know that just because we believe in God doesn't mean that we are somehow immune from enduring suffering, right? I was reading this past week. Uh, one writer said these words: quote, "A few years ago, a pastor was discussing how to preach a message from Job with four fellow ministers. When he looked around the others, at the others, for a moment he lost his concentration on the text." as he realized that one of them, some years ago, had lost his wife in a car accident in their first year of marriage. The second was bringing up a seriously handicapped daughter. The third had broken his neck and had come within two millimeters of total paralysis or death six years previously the fourth had undergone repeated surgeries that hadn't changed his life. As his concentration returned to the text of Job, he thought, this book is not merely academic, it is about people and for people who know suffering. As the same writer noted, the prevalence of suffering in our lives means that the questions that we have are not armchair questions that we might have at a distance, but they're really more like wheelchair questions. As we have gone through these things, we have these questions that stir in our hearts. If you live long enough, you will experience suffering. It is the universal language of humanity. And it causes these questions. Again, some questions are kind of intellectual. If God is all-powerful, if He is all-knowing and He's good, then how can this come about? How does this all make sense? People have these intellectual questions. While others have more, what I would say, emotional questions. Their struggles are not so much in their heads but in their hearts. They believe in God and they believe that He's compatible with the notion of suffering in the world. But the particular pain they're going through right now is causing them to wonder. And it is sapping their faith. Those emotional questions can be just as strong and as detrimental as the intellectual, can't they? So where should we turn with these struggles? Sadly, some people regard suffering as a complete mystery, something that Scripture really has no explanation at all. If that is the case, then I think it casts a long shadow on the character of God. The biggest objection to the existence of God, and Scripture has nothing to say about that, I would differ. I would differ. God knows our struggle with this question. And because He loves us, He does shed light. He does let us know that His existence and the existence of suffering, they are compatible. Now, I'm not saying that every question that we have in our mind is going to be resolved. That is impossible. There's always going to be an element of mystery. But that is different than saying that it is a complete mystery, right? Scripture gives us foundation blocks to see how belief in God is compatible with the suffering that we go through in our lives. And the Old Testament book of Job is one enormous foundation block. It tackles the question of God and suffering in a way that we often learn best. A story. A story about a man named Job. And the story of Job is utterly unique. One writer says, perhaps part of the fascination of the book of Job is that there is no other book like it, even in the ancient world. And not only does Job tackle this issue in such a, in a unique fashion, but it also does it in such a captivating and memorable way. Just frankly, it's a Fascinating and great piece of literature. The notable Scottish philosopher and historian Thomas Carlyle said, quote, I call the book of Job, apart from all theories about it, one of the grandest things ever written with the pen. Just a great book. Just a great book. And it's one of the most famous books of the Bible, and its impact has been widespread even outside of the church. People down through the ages, like I said, even non-believers have studied and wrestled with the message of Job. Philosophers like Immanuel Kant, psychologists like Carl Jung, there's a whole series of books called Lives of Great Religious Books where they describe the history and the influence of, of particular religious books, and they talk about certain books of the Bible, like Genesis and Revelation, and they also talk about Job, because it's left such a deep and lasting impact on the world. It's quite a book. So today we're going to start the book of Job, and whenever we start a new series on a book of the Bible, I'd like to give an introductory message, just to kind of lay out some of the key answers to Questions that we might have before we dive into the book to set the table, so to speak. And I think it's particularly necessary with a book like Job that is very complex. Now, to simplify things, I want to break down this message into two parts. Two parts. First is Job the person, and then secondly, Job the book. Job the person and Job the book. Job the book. Obviously, they're interconnected. But I want us to first learn about this main character and then learn some basic truths about the book as a whole. As I mentioned before, we're not going to go through every verse of the book of Job. It's a very long book, 42 chapters. We're going to hit some key passages and themes along the way. But here's what I hope will happen. I hope is that as we walk through some of these key passages and so forth, that you guys will read along with me, all right? All right. Read along with us, because you will gain so much more if you will read it a couple of times. In fact, I would say you will get 50 times the benefit if you will read along during the week and then come in ready to learn. Amen? Amen. So let's start first with who is Job the person? Who is Job the person? And yes, it is pronounced Job, not Job. Okay, Spelled like Job, but pronounced Job, Job, who is this character? Let's look at the book that is named after him. And we'll look at the first chapter, verses 1 to 5. You're using one of the Bibles in front of you. It's found right in front of the book of Psalms. Page 417, if you're using one of the Bibles there. And let's just read the first five verses that give us a little snapshot about the man Job. It says there was a man in the land of uz whose name was job that man was blameless and upright one who feared god and turned away from evil there were born to him 7 sons and 3 daughters he possessed 7000 sheep 3000 camels 500 yoke of oxen and 500 male donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east So Job is this righteous and wealthy man. He lives in the land of Uz, not Oz, but Uz. The exact identity of Uz is uncertain because it's not used very often in the Bible. It's used of people five times and of places two times. Most people would guess that it was in the land of Edom, in the land of Edom. In the Old Testament book, Lamentations 421, it says... Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, speaking of the people of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. And here's a map of the land of Edom in those days. You can see the green territory down there at the bottom. That was the kingdom of Edom. And modern day language, that would be kind of half in Egypt and half in Israel. Okay, So Job lived in this land of Edom, more than likely. You say, well, when did he live? He lived in very ancient times. He lived around the era of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Roughly around 2000 B.C. to 1500 B.C. Abraham is first mentioned in Genesis 11, right? So we're going very far back and learning about when Job came on the scene. And you see certain features in the book of Job that let you know that he lived during this time of the patriarchs. You say, well, what what is in the book of Job? Well, there's certain things that are not talked about that are very significant. For example, you never see discussed the nation of Israel, the Old Testament law, the temple, and so forth. Never hear about the Exodus or the Ten Commandments. Also, Job never talks about a priesthood that was later established that sacrifice for the people. You saw there in the passage where Job sacrificed on behalf of his own family, which was characteristic of the time of the patriarchs. So Job lived a very long time ago. And in fact, if the book of Job was written at the time that he lived, it would actually be the very first book that was written in the Bible, right? Since Moses wrote the five books that he wrote after the time of the patriarchs. So this would have been the first book written down. Now, I want to bring up an important issue when it comes to understanding the book of Job. I want you to track with me here. Some will argue that Job was not a historical person. They don't believe that Job was a historical person. Some people who argue this are skeptical scholars who approach the Bible with a mindset of, unbelief rather than belief, but then there are also some people who are Christians who believe the Bible is inspired, but don't believe that Job was a historical person. For example, I'm reading a book uh, about Job by two such authors uh, who believe that Job was inspired, but they don't think that he was a historical person, and they're ambivalent about whether or not it would make a difference in the message of the story. I bring this up because more than likely if you go and study Job and you read a magazine and a popular magazine or look up something online or watch a TV show, you might very well hear this argument. So you say, well, why do they question whether Job was a historical person? Well, here are two reasons that people bring up that I would call the strongest of their reasons and a response to them. First, Job is considered... Wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Psalms, right? And the purpose of wisdom literature was to provide readers with a kind of timeless principles for effective, successful living in life. So in one sense, wisdom literature was unhistorical. It doesn't seem to focus on historical people and events, like, say, with the book of Exodus, where it has certain people and individuals. So certainly, if you read the book of Job, there's no doubt that it reads a little bit differently than the book of Exodus, right? But in response, I would say this that yes, I would say absolutely Job is wisdom literature. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it cannot have historical elements that pass on wisdom principles. So if you read the book of Psalms, it is a body of wisdom literature. How to live effectively and wisely in this world. But yet, in those Psalms, it will talk about the nation of Israel and its history. Or it will talk about specific individuals like David and the struggles that they are going through. Does that make sense? So this strong division between wisdom and history is not as strong as some of these scholars might say. The second reason is regarding that for regarding Job as not a historical person, according to some, is that there are Bible stories that are fictional, that have, or excuse me, that are fictional but have historical elements. For example, they might look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is clearly a work of fiction, right? That Jesus tells it's a made-up story, and yet it has a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan, and they go to the cities of Jerusalem and Jericho. And someone might, they might say, well, then Job is like that, it is like a parable. Now, in response to that, I would say Job is much different than any biblical parable, right? There's no indication it's meant to be read as a parable. It reads a lot differently than that, doesn't it? You read the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan, how many verses is that passage? Six verses long. Guess how many verses the book of Job is? 1,068 verses. A lot different, wouldn't you say? Moreover, the parable of the Good Samaritan mentions no names at all. While Job mentions the names of his children and of his uh, friends and historical places and people groups and so forth, it reads much different. So I'm not convinced about that. And so I hope that you'll remember those things when you're watching that TV show or reading that magazine article. But more importantly, the person Job is mentioned in two other places outside of Scripture. Excuse me, outside of the book of Job. In both passages, he is regarded as a historical person. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, the Lord says to Ezekiel, If a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and to kill its people and their animals... Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could only save themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. So all three people mentioned here are paragons of godliness, right? And so if Daniel and Noah are regarded as historical, why would Job not be regarded as historical? And then in the New Testament, Job is briefly mentioned in James chapter 5, verse 11. It says there, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So James considers Job a historical person. Friend, a real sound principle of interpretation is to let Scripture interpret other Scripture, right? And so when you have a passage, these two other passages that regard Job as a historical person, to me that's very decisive in saying that yes, Job indeed was a real person historical man they say why'd you go all through this pastor well I'm the first to say that it's not a matter of orthodoxy per se I think someone can believe that Job wasn't historical and his message would still teach and instruct us I'm okay with that but here's why I do think it's important a I think it's a much stronger case but B Skeptics will like to regard the story of Job as unhistorical. Why? Because it undercuts its truth claims, doesn't it? If you can regard it as unhistorical, then it chips away at its trustworthiness. And if it is not real and historical, something is always lost of a story, right? You guys follow me there? And I think for Christians who maybe don't regard it as un- who regard it as unhistorical, they believe the Bible's inspired and they're not questioning that. But here's my my concern with that. And what is probably going on inside their minds is that they're uncomfortable with the message of Job. Job's view of God and suffering is very challenging. Job gives us a view. That is very strong and persuasive of who God is. It is an overwhelming view of God. It is not a God that sometimes we gravitate toward in our culture where Jesus is basically just kind of our buddy. He is that. He is our friend. God is the friend of us, and God is tender and compassionate. But Job gives us this view of God that just blows us out of our seats and reminds us of who we are, that God is God and we are not God. And so if we can make it a parable, it kind of softens it and tones it down a bit and shrinks God to the God that we like, the size that we can handle, the size that we can control. But that's not the God of Job. And the very hope of the story, and as we'll see as we go through here, the very hope for our lives is a God who is like this. Who is great, grand, and majestic, and powerful. Though we can't figure them all out, can not we? So I think this story about Job is about a real man who suffered and went through these things. And it is foolish to try to dumb down the message of who and what Job teaches. Amen? So let's turn from Job the person to Job the book. So who start, start this off. Who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Job? Well, it never says who actually wrote it. There's no clear tradition outside of the Bible that says it was written by a certain so-and-so. There's some people who say that it was written by Job. Some say it was by Moses. Perhaps it was written by someone just familiar with the story, like a friend or a family member. Or perhaps it was written at a later time. I have no problem with that. Moses wrote Genesis after his time. He used the sources he had, whether they were written or oral. The Gospel writers did the same thing with the life of Jesus. Maybe it's so with the book of Job. But at the end of the day, Job is inspired and regarded as Scripture. And I think it's kind of neat that we actually have the book of Job because it's actually expressed in the middle, right there in Job 19, that he hoped these words would be recorded. It says in Job 19, 23 and 24, it says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So Job got his wish. They were written down, and we're so glad that they were. Now, the next question about Job that I want to look at is, what is its structure? In other words, what is the outline, the layout to a book? like Job. We need that because this is a very big book, very long, and thankfully Job has a very clear structure. There are three parts to the book of Job. There's the prologue, the dialogue, and the epilogue. The prologue, the dialogue, and the epilogue. The first is the prologue. That's the first couple chapters. It gives you the setting. It it lays out the characters. And here Job is introduced. And the scene shifts after the passage we just read there to a conversation in the throne room of heaven that's taking place about Job and the suffering that he's about to endure. And that's where we're going to pick up next week, this great conversation that takes place in the throne room of heaven. The second part of the book is what we call the dialogue. And here, it's interesting, the writing style from, changes from prose to poetry. And what we see here also is the scene shifts from heaven, what's taking place in heaven, what takes place here on earth. And at this point also, three characters appear. Job's buddies, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the friends of Job. And they get into a long back and forth conversation with Job. They discuss the suffering that Job is going through and the justice of God. And they go back and forth. And Job maintains his innocence in the midst of this conversation while they disagree with him and think that he has done something wrong. Now as you read through this, you'll think, wow, these are a lot of conversations. You maybe get lost in the middle of them. But there's actually a pattern to these conversations. If you want to note this, there's three sets of conversations that take place between Job and his friends. In each case, a friend will talk, then Job will respond, then another friend will talk, and then Job will respond, and then the third friend will will talk, and then Job will respond. And so this goes on three sets or cycles of conversations that they have between Job and his three friends. Except in the very last speech, the man Zophar does not speak. If you want to write this down, if this will help you as you're reading through The first cycle of conversations is chapters 4 to 14. The second cycle is chapters 15 to 21. And then the third cycle is chapter 22 to 31. Then at that point, it's interesting, after they've had their running through the mill here, a new character pops up named Elihu. And he's obviously a younger guy because he's been patiently listening to his elders talk and try to solve this situation. And Elihu jumps up and he gives a long monologue. And he's frustrated that they haven't convinced Job that he's wrong. And so he gives this long monologue about Job in this situation. And before Job even has a chance to respond, someone else jumps in the conversation. And that is the Lord. In verse 38 through 41. We have this speech from the Lord, which is actually the longest speech of God in all of Scripture. And it is overwhelming. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's majestic. And then that leads to the final part of the story of Job, which is the epilogue in chapter 42. And it's actually just the last 11 verses of Job. And that goes back to uh, concluding the story with how things unfold for Job and his three friends. Let me encourage you there is a temptation. To want to read the prologue and the epilogue and kind of skip past the dialogue, but all three parts are really important in understanding the book of Job. All parts. Now, leads to just a kind of a footnote there. You might say, "Well, why does it get kind of long and repetitive?" That's natural to feel that way when you read through Job. Well, here's my guess. Job is written in such a way. That tackling this question of suffering and God knows that there is no quick, easy answer. You're not going to resolve that issue with a text message or a Facebook post. The length and the repetition of Job makes us search and think and pray. Just like Job has to go through this stuff and process. The reader is expected to do the same. And I believe that if you will let Job speak to your heart and mind, you will be blessed. Job gives us such a wonderful and unique perspective and contribution to this whole perennial question and issue about God and suffering. Oh, that we would really take it to heart these next few months that said, let me also encourage us that we will also be looking at all of Scripture to hear the full counsel of God. Anytime you read a book of the Bible, you need to read it in light of everything else, don't you? And we'll be doing that here. And most of all, to fully understand Job, we also need to look at everything in the light of Jesus. Jesus is the one that pulls all these things together. All the promises, all the principles, all these things, they come to head in Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We're going to regularly see how it's essential to go back and again, back and again, to Jesus as the one who provides really the ultimate capstone on this whole conversation about God and suffering. Friends, all of us have or will face Suffering. It may not be as severe as what we'll see Job goes through. But it's going to affect everybody. And let me encourage you that the best thing you can do is to prepare for it now. To prepare for it now. Do not wait until you are crushed under the weight of affliction and tragedy, to then start trying to make sense of what you're going through. It will be much more difficult. You need to prepare now for the day of affliction and suffering. Don't wait until the day comes when that relationship is broken or that medical test comes back the wrong way, or you lose your job, or you experience the death of a loved one. Prepare now We need to understand what Scripture teaches about suffering, the different causes that lie behind it, what the purposes are in God's mysterious handiwork of what is going on there, to develop this majestic and glorious view of God so that we trust that He is Lord over our suffering no matter how deep and dark the circumstances might be. And to embrace the hope of the Gospel of Christ. and that He truly is the Alpha and Omega. Friends, we're not going to resolve every issue and every hurt, but I truly believe that you can develop and lay down a firm foundation that will be able to withstand the most fiercest of storms. And I think through our study of Job, you will be stretched and challenged that you will be prepared to endure suffering with a deep and steadfast trust in the Lord. Amen? You guys ready to dive in next week? Let's do it. We'll have a little bit of discussion after we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you that you have worked in your mysterious ways, to bring about this book called Job. And Lord, even just looking at it and reading it the past few weeks just reminded again of your infinite wisdom, your infinite power, and your infinite goodness. Lord, I know that just sitting in here today, just like that man wrote about the four pastors he was looking at the, uh, across from the table and saw the hurt and the wounds that they were going through. Lord, I know that Uh, even knowing some of the people here in front of me, maybe not knowing some of the things that they struggle, Lord, that that is the case for probably all of us. Lord, I pray that you will take and use your word to minister and to strengthen, and to transform us, Lord God, so that we will indeed be able to withstand the storms of life. We might get knocked around a little bit for sure, as the waves come crashing. But there is truly victory that is found in you. May we pursue the wisdom that comes from you and not the wisdom that comes from our own hearts and minds. And may we come with a childlike trust that you know what you're talking about and that you have given truths and wisdom for your people to follow and to implement so that we can be salt and light in a world that is filled with suffering and that they can find hope and truth in the great God that we love and serve and worship. Lord, we just give these next few months to you. We look forward to all that you'll be doing in our hearts and minds. And I pray that after we have absorbed all of this and other words uh, from your scripture, Lord, that we would be different after these times together, that we would be a different people Stronger in you. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.